Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. It was a real honour for me to be able to speak with Margaret Burnett. Margaret's a professor of computer science in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Oregon State University, and her work has been honoured by numerous awards. Margaret is an inspirational pioneer in so many ways. In our conversation, she shares her experiences as the first female software developer at Procter & Gamble Ivorydale in the 1970s, and then in creating two startups. She also talks about her academic career and work, And in particular, what she's currently really passionate about, and that's her GenderMag project, which is about creating more gender-inclusive software. She also talks about strategies that she very deliberately deploys to dovetail activities like management and mentoring. And she shares how she drew fences around her daily work to manage family life when her children were younger. And maybe we can all join her in doing something every day that counts to make the world a little better. So, Margaret, thank you very much for agreeing to talk with me today. We haven't actually met before, so I'm really looking forward just to hearing your story because you were one of the very early female computer scientists. And, in fact, if I look at your bio, you were the first female uh, computer scientist uh, employed by Procter Gamble in 71. Well, almost. Almost. Um, I was the first ever employed by Procter & Gamble at Ivorydale, which oh, was okay. a, a very large complex of, I don't know, six or seven um, buildings. It included the uh, the technical center there, R&D mm-hmm. people, and I was the first woman who had ever been hired into what was considered to be a management level com- position, and so that included software developers. Mm. So not only had they never had a female software developer out there, they'd also never had a female at any management level position, so I was the first. And what was that experience like? Oh, it was weird. Um, So this is a really long time ago, because I'm just super old. (laughs) So um, back then, we we weren't talking, I mean, it wasn't really a conversation about... um, about the the inequities between men, women and men in the workplace, or or you know anything like sexual harassment or micro uh, harassments, or none of this stuff was in the conversation. Anyway, and so the first thing was um, I graduated at an odd time of year, so I finished up early in December, and so that's you know that meant I was interviewing at a time where there weren't a whole lot of other people interviewing. And also, computer science was fairly new, and so there, in fact, I was at the only university in the country that had computer science as a major at that time. Wow. Others had it as a minor, but yeah. only only Miami of Ohio had it as a major then. Anyway, and so there was an opening out there, and only two of us interviewed for it: me and and a, a person, a guy who was somewhere inside Procter and Gamble, not a computer person, but wanted the job. And so uh, back then, the fact that he didn't have a computer science background didn't trouble anyone because nobody did, right? Mm, yeah. And so they just hired anybody and said, well, you'll learn. Um, anyhow, but uh, the, the boss, the, my direct supervisor, really wanted me because he really wanted somebody with qualifications. And he had to fight tooth and nail 
to get people to consider me because no woman had ever been there. And so there were just all these objections raised. You know, well, she'll be the only woman. Will it be safe? What if she has to work at night? I mean, all of these, you know, these things of the era. And, but I didn't know that. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, when I did the interview, that went well. Um, well, I think I'll just skip that part. Anyway, <laughs> um, and so eventually I was hired, and, um, and then it was very awkward. And mm. so, uh, for example, who was I supposed to go to lunch with? Was I supposed to go to lunch with my, with my peers, who were all men, and never went to lunch with women because their peers weren't women? Oh, yeah. Or do I go to lunch with the secretaries? You know who were the women, and so nobody knew the answer to stuff like this. So who did you go to lunch? I went with? to lunch with my peers, um, which. But did you have to force yourself? You know, did you get invited along, or did you have to push not yourself? Not really. Along? Nobody even. Nobody really even knew how to talk about it, you know. And so it's like, I think I just tagged along. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because that's who I had something in common with. I wasn't really mm. taking a stand. It was more like. You know, well, these are the people I'm working with. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, and then um, then people wanted to be nice and welcoming, but you know, people had been raised in a different era, and so I'd walk into a room, everybody they haven't met me before, you know, and so they'd say what they thought was very courteous, like, "Oh, she'll brighten up the meeting," <laughs> and so. I felt very uncomfortable, but mm. I didn't even know why, mm. because that was courtesy, mm. you know, uh, same as opening doors for people and, and you know, so, um, so it was, we didn't have a vocabulary. I guess that's the big thing. We just didn't have a vocabulary. Mm. Anyway, um, because I was the first in this position, I actually got to meet the president of the company. None of my peers got to do that. Mm. Um, we went to, there was, that was at the big, I don't know, annual shindig, whatever it was they called it. And uh, this annual shindig, they, they did a, a regular party, and then there was sort of an after party. And I got invited to that, too, and it was at the Playboy Club, which was just oh. so uncomfortable. Mm. But I went because, you know, everybody else was going, right? That's really hard to navigate yeah. for you then. It was, it was very uncomfortable. The culture wasn't, um, it wasn't ready for, wasn't it yeah. there for women? That's and right. And you also didn't have the, I don't know, the, the, the broader societal right. uh, discussion around it That's to, right. to draw on, to help identify what was going on. That's right. I just didn't, didn't have the words for it. Yeah. But um, by the time I left, there were four whole women at management positions at this, uh, this part of, of Procter & Gamble that had over 10,000 employees. So, uh, so it was changing. And I looked at a little bit, and, and I looked at their, their website a couple of years ago, and it looks like nowadays they are very into diversity and inclusion mm. and all of these That's things. Nice. So, um, so it does appear that you know they yeah. they really got religion. Yeah. So, uh, about and that. it's just reflecting the time, as yes, you said. Yes, the time. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think were the, some of the changes that you were able to institute around those issues in the time just by your being there? Well, it, it was a glass ceiling, you know, and so now that glass ceiling was shown to not not be unbreakable. I think that's the big thing, mm -hmm. is it's like, oh, yeah, we can actually entertain interviewing this person. You know, they have a woman mm -hmm. in management over there. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's, that's probably the big thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, 
Yeah. So um, how long did you work in industry for then? Well, so that job I only worked at a year and a half, and I actually loved the job. I liked it a mm. lot. Uh, but I was a newlywed, and uh, my husband had, uh, this was in Cincinnati, and my husband had long wanted to move out west. And so that was part of the deal. You know, when we got married, you know, so sooner or later we're going to go out west. And so he got very itchy <laughs> and, and decided, okay, it's time to go out west. And, you know, I'm kind of a roots person, so I was already pretty rooted. You know, mm -hmm. I'm having a great time, but okay, a deal's a deal. So we... Um, uh, he was a school teacher, a high school teacher, and so we um, we took spring break and um, flew out to Albuquerque and rented a car and drove our way up to Utah, trying to find places to move to. We were so young and foolish. How many, how many miles is that? A lot. Because <laughs> that's from one end to the other, isn't it? Um, my geography um, isn't all that. Albuquerque is. Uh, I don't know, probably about 300 miles north of the border, something like that, the Mexican border. Yeah. And then Utah, I don't know quite, we, uh, we flew out of Salt Lake City, so I'm not quite sure. That's got to be at least 500 miles yeah. south of the Canadian border, right. so That's it wasn't a the long whole thing. Way. But That's yeah. a long way. Anyway. And along the way, uh, we stopped in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my husband said, oh, I love this place. Let's move here. So, you know, okay. <laughs> so, um, Life changes. Yeah, yeah. And um, we both had reasonable savings because we hadn't really had a great deal to spend our money on, and, and we were making decent salaries, so we had a cushion. And I interviewed there uh, at, while we were in Santa Fe and thought I had a job lined up, but then when we ultimately moved out there, I didn't. That job wasn't really there. So, so neither of us really had anything, and so I started working. Um, well, I just started looking around. Santa Fe wasn't that big a place, mm -hmm. but there was a, a, a couple, there were a couple of guys who had just started a timesharing company, and so they were renting out computer time to small businesses and mm -hmm. stuff. And and one of the two guys that started this business. Um, had, uh, you know, was a programmer, and so, you know, he did a lot of programming so that, you know, these businesses could do things like, you know, general ledger and payroll and stuff like that on this computer of his. And then people would get terminals and dial up. And um, anyway, so they weren't hiring. Um, and so they said, well, you know, we don't, you know, we're not hiring, but there's some accountant that's looking at using our services, and, you know, I don't know, you could go talk to him. So I went to talk to the accountant, and uh, he was established in town, and he wanted to modernize and, and start a, a new sort of uh, accounting thing in which we would do our stuff on computers. And so he had the contacts and everything, so he said, let's start this new business and be partners. And I said, okay. That's it. But what I didn't know is being partners meant you get no salary until oh, the business is making money, yes, right? Because yeah, you're one of the yeah. owners. So we still had no money, but at least I had a job. <laughs> My husband started digging water well, wells with this water well company just to keep uh, food on the table. But then uh, pretty soon he got a better job drafting. And so we were, you know, as young yeah, and foolish people, yeah. we were limping along. And eventually the, the business started doing better, and eventually my husband went back to school and got a second degree and became an engineer. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and did you start getting a salary at some point from the company? Yeah, I did. Um, and I started doing a lot of programming, um, so there would always be some business mm -hmm. using this service that wanted something a little bit mm -hmm. different. And so uh, since the owner of the company was too busy programming to just keep things running on his end, then he'd always just throw that my way. And so I did a lot of freelance programming, and, and um, yeah. Uh, there was one guy, though, 
who wouldn't deal with me because I was a woman. And so I knew him well. He shared an office in this same office area where I spent mm. a lot of time too. And so we were friendly and so on and so forth. But then when it came to, you know, doing something like this, he just didn't trust a woman. That's just really unbelievable. Yeah. But again, probably just reflecting the time. Uh, well, I, think I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Because when you've got a personal relationship with someone and you can see yeah. that they're competent. Yeah. Well, mm. he didn't have the, uh, an ability to judge whether I was competent because he didn't have any computer background. Mm. So he told the owner of the timesharing company that he would contract with him and that if that guy wanted to subcontract with me, that was his problem, you know, but then he would be responsible. And so the, the timesharing guy was really embarrassed by this mm. and so he tried to hide it from me so mm. he kept making up excuses about why he needed to go to the meetings and not me and stuff and of course this was very transparent and I it was pretty miffed about the whole thing until mm. I found out what he was covering up but then I knew he was doing the best he could yeah. but eventually of course I did do fine and uh, and and the guy finally decided he trusted me after all <laughs> so what what made you move into academia well, um, so the day, okay, so I had always... you seemed like you really loved the work in industry. I did. I've loved every job I've ever had. Well, almost every job. Almost. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, on my final day of undergraduate mm. school, when I went to get some signature from some professor, and he said, what, you're not going to grad school? And nobody had ever mentioned graduate school to me before, and I'd never thought about it. But as soon as he said it, I thought, oh, yes, that would be so awesome. Was this before you went to industry? Yeah, yeah, okay. this was my last was day. Last yeah. Anyway, so it stuck in my head. Okay. Um, and so then when we were in Santa Fe, there was no university there, so obviously I wasn't going to grad school then. But um, after about six years in Santa Fe, um, my husband got recruited uh, by USGS at their office in Lawrence, Kansas, where there was a university. So once again, I'd put down my roots. I didn't want to go. You know, but he dragged me kicking and screaming there. And uh, so I got there uh, eight months pregnant with our first child. And so this seemed like the ideal time to go back to school. So, uh, so that's what I did. And um, so I, uh, I raised our, our babies while um, picking up my master's degree at University of Kansas. And then I started a business with one of the professors there. And um, So th by this time it's your second business? Yeah, yeah, it's my second one. Mm. Anyway, um, and that has an interesting side story too. So um, many people who are in two career marriages with children know what a juggling act sometimes yeah, it is with yeah. the, the kids and everything. And, and so one thing that was particularly stressful for us was that um, the daycare had this annoying habit of closing whenever the university did because they were affiliated with the university. So there'd be this long stretch where there's no daycare. And so then somebody's got to take off mm -hmm. work. And so that somebody often is not was me. Um, and so, um, so I, I love my kids and I loved my kids, but after about three days of no adult conversation, you know, I'd start having brainstorms and stuff. You know, I was like, I gotta think of something. So one of the things that happened during that period of time is I'd go somewhere with my husband socially and uh, everybody wanted to know what he did for a living and nobody wanted to know what I did for a living. And, you know, I was just mm -hmm. decoration. Mm -hmm. And I had this business I had started. I wanted to promote it and network and they're just, it was just never very possible. And so on one of these daycare vacations, I decided, okay, we need an organization of professional women 
you know, that's about networking and, and helping each other in business. And there were business women's associations, but they were usually to raise money for some worthy cause yeah, and not, yeah. not, not that. So I started something called the Lawrence Women's Network. During, Good on you. So I just when, called. When was this? Like what sort it was of 30 time? years ago. Uh, so that was in about 85-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and so I just called everybody in the yellow pages that looked like it might be a woman-owned business or, you know. And, um, and so I started that thing, and um, it, it kept going. And then, you know, eventually we, we didn't live in Lawrence anymore. But just a couple of years ago, I looked it up online, and it's still going. Isn't that great? Yeah. Something that you so created. Awesome. Yeah. That's probably helped so many other women. It's just awesome. And in fact, I was back in Kansas recently, and it happened that they were having one of their meetings. This was just a couple weeks ago. Mm. So they invited me. Wow. And there was nobody in it that had been in it when yeah. I was in it. But yeah. one person said her mother had been in it. And um, yeah, it was just so awesome. That's having impact. I guess, yeah, uh, in a small in, way. In small, it's, but yeah. smaller, but in very tangible and important ways. I guess, yeah. Um, but we, okay. So, all right, had the business going, and, um, and it was a consulting business. There was mm -hmm. a lot of up and down, and so I decided it needed to be more stable. And so um, since I had a master's degree, that meant that I was qualified to be sort of a, one of these fill-in instructors at, at the university. So I started teaching a course fairly regularly as part of their curriculum when they needed somebody. And I discovered that I really liked teaching, which I hadn't realized before. So I decided I wanted to go back and get a PhD so I could be a faculty member. So that's why I did. So you actually went back to get a PhD to be a faculty member, not yes. to be a researcher, as the first motivation. Right. That's right. Yeah. And um, yeah, um, and that made me the second woman to ever get a PhD from University of Kansas in computer science. The first one was about 10 years before me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that there was such a long gap between. Well, I think it's because women didn't get degrees in computer yeah. science much. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. How did we how did we get started on this? I'm not quite sure what well, question I was, I was saying, answering. I was saying, how did you move into oh, academia? Yeah, that's yeah. that's how. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, have you carried this interest in promoting women, like the women's business, women's network, you know, uh, interest? Has a similar thing in parallel played out in academia in your academic life? Um, yes, but you know, it's it's funny. For the long time, longest time, I think it was sort of subconscious. Mm -hmm. So, um, like the Lawrence Women's Network, uh, I think part of you know that was really almost a self-interest. You know, yeah. I felt like I needed it, yeah. and um, so when I started uh, at my faculty job. Um, I ended up with an undergrad researcher. And so just about that time, NSF was um, starting to really kind of ramp up their interest in research experience for undergrad grants. And so um, since I had worked with one undergrad student along the way, I thought, yeah, this can be a good thing. And, but I decided I wanted it to be a woman. So just about that time is when I was uh, just starting my position at Oregon State. And so, um, so I asked around, you know, are there any really good women you know, in computer science that you'd recommend? And they recommended one. And so I, um, I applied for one of those REU supplements and, and brought her into my lab. And there, too, I mean, it was kind of a subconscious thing. And I definitely wanted it to be a woman. But at the same time, um, 
I wasn't planning to carve off part of my life and go yeah. off and babysit her. Yeah. So I just kind of threw her onto my team, mm -hmm. and we all worked together as mm -hmm. a team. Mm -hmm. So um, I quickly discovered that this was another great self-interest thing because she was just helping me get more research done. Mm -hmm. And so it was like win-win-win. Mm -hmm. and, and the team, the whole team um, working style worked out great for yeah. her. And, um, and I became hooked on doing that, and, um, and so I've sort of done it ever since. And I think I was the first ever to have uh, undergrads, research undergrads, on my team in my, in my university, and, or at least in my department. Um, but eventually it caught on, and, and now a whole lot of people do. And do a lot of those go on and do research? They do. What I'm doing when I bring them in is I'm giving them... Um, almost a, a graduate student experience. So I have them do pretty much the same thing the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they photocopy, so do we. Um, and yeah, they print stuff out, so do we. And uh, they help me review papers, they help write papers, they do a lot of qualitative research, they do quantitative empirical work, they, they build tools, you know, they do everything I do, yeah. uh, everything all of us do. And is that, are they in their full-time, or is this, is this alongside their studies? It's, it's with their studies. Mm -hmm. Usually I hire them um, uh, about 10 hours a week during the school year, and then sometimes full-time in the summer. Wow. Yeah, That's a brilliant experience for them. It, it's good for them, yeah. and uh, I've had some very, very good ones who've gone on to eventually become faculty members yeah. in computer science and oh, HCI. Great. Oh, that's so, lovely. Yeah, it's awesome. In fact, two of them are here at this conference, so yeah, that's, yeah. Pretty awesome. So, what, what would you call them? They're almost like your. Oh, they're my daughters. Your, your, they're like yeah. My academic children. Your academic yes, children. and I have I have grandchildren now. And, Do you? And nieces and nephews. <laughs> academic. Yeah, we were. Yeah, and and so I run across these these academic grandchildren that I haven't met before because yeah. they're at other universities yeah. and yeah. stuff, and I introduce them to their uncles and their aunts, and you know, wouldn't I mean, it it's really fun. Wouldn't it be interesting to do an academic family tree? Yeah, it would. It would. I, uh, I think about that once in a while. Because but, that's yeah. in the way that family trees are really interesting, just yes. seeing how one person has yes. yeah, it had an influence on all of these people under the tree, just uh -huh. thinking about all of right. the people that you've influenced directly uh -huh. or indirectly. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I have academic grandchildren now all over the world. So I've got, I've got one in Namibia yeah. and uh, in London and, um, yeah, a lot of different places. Wow. It's really... Really That's, amazingly fun. Mm. So how long have you been at Oregon State? Um, it'll be almost 25 years. Let's yeah. see here. I got there in 92 or 3, depending yeah. on how you count. Yeah, so about 25 years, yeah. yeah. And what have been the big changes that you've seen over that time? Uh, not, not in technology, but more in academic um, culture experiences. Um, well, I don't know if I have a good answer for that one. But what I can I can tell you sort of um, the things about me that I did change and mm -hmm. didn't change. So when I, um, when I uh, got tenure, somebody said to me, well, what are you going to change? And I thought, change? Really? Am mm -hmm. I supposed to change something? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I realized that I could start taking a lot more academic risks. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be a very good thing. Um, and so I relish it now. And so if I, get a, if I submit a paper to some conference, I consider it a badge of honor if I get all like ones on a scale of five. It's like, what is she doing? <laughs> because it shows me that I'm out there. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, fives are good too. 
But, yeah. but I don't like the, the middle-of-the-road ones right. because those, you know, it's saying, well, you know, maybe it's just pretty incremental, you know, very conservative. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I, I do like being out there. Um, uh, the other thing, though, that stayed the, chain, stayed the same is uh, I think this is very much along the theme of, of, of this course you're offering here, this uh, purposeful yes thing. Yes. Yeah. Strategic yes. Strategic yes. yes. Okay. So I don't know a whole lot about what you were teaching, but mm -hmm. I suspect that I do that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things that I was really lucky about is when I got my PhD, my advisor was just getting ready to go up for tenure. So that's all he ever thought about. And so... He would say, you know, I've been invited to do such and such. And I'd say, oh, that's great. That'll really help your tenure case, won't it? And he said, no, it doesn't count. And I'm going, what do you mean it doesn't count? And so it helped me understand, you know, how you have to sort of manage your academic career. Mm -hmm. So about by the time I got out, I realized that whenever I say yes to something, I need to have a reason. Right. And so that's what I usually tell uh young students or, or, or young faculty members too is don't ever say yes unless you know why you're saying yes. So what are some of the reasons that you would say yes? Well, one reason to say yes is because, you know, you're totally passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So you need that for your mental health. Mm -hmm. um, or one reason to say yes is it'll get you a collaboration with somebody that you know you really want to uh, collaborate with or it will, uh, you know, get you you know, a wonderful new paper or some grant money or whatever. Um, reasons not to say yes that we sometimes are tempted to say yes for are, you know, you'd be good at it. You know, you'd be the best choice for it. You know, you, you know how to do it. Mm -hmm. you, the, the person who asked you is nice. You know, those are not reasons to say yes. So um, I, get, I guess a great example is reviewing papers. So we get asked to review papers all the time. And I say yes if I feel like I owe that, that publication something. You know, they've published my stuff, I owe it to review back. So the publication venue, the conference right. or the journal. Right, right. But if it's somebody that I've never submitted to, you know, unless that paper just speaks to me yeah. and it makes it impossible for me to not read it, yeah. then I say no. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do too for those. And uh -huh. I will often say in reply that, you know, I, I, I am struggling to contribute to my own peer community yeah. and I don't right. have any capacity. right. Right, exactly. To, to deliver beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Are there any times that you've said yes and regretted? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, let's see here. Well, yeah, I guess... Catastrophically uh, regretted or something. <laughs> catastrophically? You don't have to be a catastrophic. I don't think it's catastrophic, but there was... Uh, there was one, one um, sponsor, somebody who, who gave us some money to do research, and that sponsor was not fun to work with. Um, they were just kind of sleazy, mm. you know? And, um, and so it was like, it, it was just so slippery trying to deal with them. And uh, man, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was one year of funding. And I was never so glad to escape the end of that. It was like, yeah, yeah. So I, I was sorry I had started down mm. that path, but it didn't last that long. That's, that's good. Yeah. So what other changes? You said you can reflect on the oh. ways that you've changed. Okay. The so the, <laughs> the risk thing continued to increase um, mm -hmm. over, mm -hmm. over my career. So I... Um, <clears throat> I'm very risk averse about some things, but academically, I love taking risks. I love working on something that nobody else has thought to work mm -hmm. on. And um, 
And what would be an example of that? Okay, so an example is Gender Mag. Gender Mag all started before Gender Mag. And so I had a PhD student who was trying to figure out what she would like to do her work on. And, and uh, somehow we came up with the idea that she could look at um, software from an HCI perspective and, and look at whether there were gender biases on the, on the user-facing part of that. And the reason that it was in our minds is at that time, which was about 2003, um, people had really started to talk about the lack of women in the computer science um, workforce mm -hmm. and, and education arena. And so people were, were really talking about that, but they weren't talking about software. And so this student, whose name was Laura Beckwith, um, she decided to look and see whether there were some things that would uh, be implicated in software itself. Mm. And so she started reading from everywhere. She was reading feminist literature, and she was reading psychology and education, and everywhere. She was just uh, computer gaming stuff. She was just soaking in these things, uh, many of which were theory-based. Mm -hmm. theory mm -hmm. And these hypotheses just start dropping in her lap. So, for example, when she was reading about um, um, information processing styles, which is actually in the academic discipline of marketing, not marketing research, but research about marketing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, you know, and so, so she read about how um, um, you know, of course, they're all individual differences, but, but these sort of um, clustering tendencies, um, women tend to want more information when they're problem solving before they take actions, and then they take more actions together. So it's kind of a bursty style. Oh. Gather, 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 yeah. gather, do, 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 gather, like that. And men, if you look at these sort of statistical clusters, mm. are much more likely to take a teensy little tight iteration style, like, you know, gather something, try something with it, knowing you might be wrong, but it's yeah. okay. You know, gather something else, try something, try something, oh, that was a bad idea, back up, gather something else, okay? And so this hypothesis would drop in her lap as well, shouldn't that have an implication then in the user experience of the way software is or yeah. with software when you're problem solving? Because yeah. it supports you in providing, in, in going exactly. through whatever steps it exactly. offers. It, yeah. it shapes the steps that you exactly. can Exactly, yeah. And so she ended up with this huge basket of hypotheses about software and gender differences in, in you know, the way people use mm. software. Mm. And, and her scope was problem solving, so mm. she wasn't really interested in any other activity that you mm. might be doing. Mm. Anyway, so with this raft of hypothesis that, hypotheses, then we went into the lab to see whether indeed these things were starting to show themselves in the way people use software. Yeah. And, and we kept finding it in spades. And, and um, over and over and over again with different populations and different applications and you know programmers and, and secretaries and students and you know anybody. You know, we just kept finding this. And so, um, we spent, uh, Laura graduated, and but by then I was completely hooked on this, and then I had a couple of other students after that that followed up, and so we probably spent about, um, oh, probably about 10 years building those foundations and running a lot of studies, and, and um, pretty soon other people were running studies too, and, and then out of the blue one day, I get this email, and so this is a, an industry guy, and so um, his company builds software and hardware, this, this hardware-software comp combination for a particular branch of medicine. And it happens that most of the practitioners in that, in that branch of medicine are women. And um, women hated their software. 
And so for his company to survive, he needed to figure out what's what, wrong. Yeah, what's going on? And so he looked on the web and he found, you know, gender software. Oh, yeah, contact Burnett. So he sent me this email saying, you know, here's this problem, you know, please help. And, and so that's when I realized we don't have anything to give him. All we have is a pile of academic papers, mm. you know, but what somebody like him needs is mm. a practical method. Mm. And you would understand that particularly, having worked in industry and knowing what's needed. Uh, maybe, yeah. Uh, but actually, um, my collaborators, especially Simone Stumpf, were very, um, very, very good at helping us keep our eye on the practicality mm -hmm. because she had also been a user experience researcher besides being a researcher researcher. And so, you know, she kept saying, oh, that's too academic. You know, we have to get more practical. And then Laura, my, my PhD student, by that time had also been a user experience. Uh, that's what she did after mm -hmm. she left. And so both of them actually had a way better eye for it than I did mm -hmm. by that time. Right. So uh, that's when we started building this method called GenderMag, which stands for Gender Inclusiveness Magnifier. And um, we've been iterating on it for, I guess, about three, two or three years now. We continue to try to make it better and better and better. It's all downloadable. It's mm -hmm. all free. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a paper on it right here at CHI. Excellent. Tomorrow. I'll have to look it up. Tomorrow. I'll have to attend. Very last paper, very last session. Oh. Uh, it's, uh, it's called... Um, gender inclusive uh, personas versus stereotyping or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, because the method is a combination of some research backed personas that, that build upon all that work we built mm -hmm. up, uh, set in a method which is a specialized form of a cognitive walkthrough and, um, and, and, and a vocabulary about problem solving like information processing style. Mm -hmm. And so uh, anyway, these things are all intertwined with each other. And, um, um, and then the, the paper tomorrow looks at, the, uh, at these, these personas that we've built because some people were worried that perhaps having personas with certain attributes, you know, if, if the persona was female, say, or male, then it might be used by people to sort of techno-stereotype, oh, all yes. women might be like this. Yes. Um, and so, so we did this study with uh, my awesome collaborator Nicola Marsden from um, she, she's from Germany, and um, and so what we found out is even the original personas actually weren't doing very much stereotyping, or weren't invoking very much stereotyping. But we have a new version that mm -hmm. I call multi personas mm -hmm. that um, that absolutely don't invoke stereotyping at all, and so these multi personas have four pictures on them. Mm -hmm. um, and so right there together on the same persona. And so uh, what we found out is um, Nicola is an eye tracking expert. And so what she showed us is people weren't even looking at the pictures, just a quick glance. They quickly realized the picture isn't the point. Mm -hmm. It's the problem solving yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so we measured stereotyping various different ways and they absolutely were not doing it. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm a huge fan now of these multi-personas. Yeah. And, and what I was worried about is that it might reduce engagement because it might so you not... don't have that single yes. Uh, yes. persona to exactly. engage with. And what makes personas work is, is this similarity to being a person. So we were very afraid, you know, that people would sort of lose empathy or whatever, but it didn't happen. Yeah, they just realized that the picture is not the point. And that's, that's really interesting as well because... You talked about those studies that showed the statistical mm -hmm. tendency for yes. more men to, to 
process mm -hmm. information in this way, but yeah. it doesn't mean that all men do. No. And that's one of the risks of having a single persona in the stereotyping way that you said. And I right. like it because I, I, I had a look at them on your webpage and uh -huh. I love the way they're called Pat. Oh, as the Pat. Pat yeah. or Patrick or uh -huh. Pat or Patricia, uh -huh. like uh -huh. as what, you, what you want. But mm -hmm. this lovely neutral name that uh -huh. can become... Yeah, we had we have three, well, four personas, I guess. We have Abby and we have Pat and Pat and Tim. Mm -hmm. But then even Abby has four pictures. I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw that on the no, web page. We may not have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, mm -hmm. I guess you'll see that tomorrow mm -hmm. at the paper. Um, but even Abby has pictures of three woman, women and a man mm -hmm. on hers. And mm -hmm. so all of them now have four pictures. So they're all multi in that way. It makes sense, though, doesn't it, to think that if uh, an an industry has been dominated by people who, in the majority, think a particular way that mm -hmm. they will unthinkingly yes. embed those biases yes. and assumptions in the, the tools and operating systems and software and interfaces that we work with. Exactly. And so here's, here's a great example. So sometimes I'm an ACM distinguished speaker, which means that um, people can sort of request me mm -hmm. and I'll go talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually what I talk about is gender mag because that's my yeah. change the world yeah. mission. Anyway, um, and I can see you're passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally, totally passionate about it. Anyway, um, and so I was just at one last week. And so, you know, we, we did our startup and, uh, and we're into this evaluation of the mm. software that they mm. had brought to the evaluation using uh, one of the personas, namely Abby, uh, with the multiple pictures, of mm -hmm. course. And, um, and so we're working our way along and, and then their boss came in uh, and he was, of course, very supportive, but he'd missed the sort of startup and the rules of the game mm -hmm. and stuff. And so he watches silently for a while, and then he starts pitching in with the evaluation. And so at some point he said, well, when you want to do such and such, you know, then you would do this and this and this. And I said, hold on. <laughs> we don't use you in these sessions because we don't care about you. Mm -hmm. You have to say Abby because that's the persona we brought in. And so he said... Okay, so he started over, and he said, when Abby wants to do such and such, and then the end, how that ends, changed. He didn't say the same thing he said when he'd said you. He said, then Abby would want to, and he changed the ending. Interesting. Yeah, and so um, I think what that shows is um, it's, it's very easy to drift off, mm. you know, the, the mm. engagement with the, the person you're supposed to be thinking about, but by having those personas right there and, and plugged into your whole method, mm. if, you, if you make everybody stay true to it, yeah. then, um, yeah, then they, they, really, they really find stuff. The average of all the people that I have data about is, uh, I, that comes from 18 or 19 teams, um, uh, the average is one feature out of every three that they evaluate. They find a gender inclusiveness problem with in their own software. Eva them doing the evaluating, yeah, wow. they find that many wow. errors. So that's horrible. So in practical terms, if you're developing software and interface, does that mean you have to provide different ways of engaging in problem solving through the same interface and people have to somehow recognize themselves and... Well, follow, the, follow the path that they would that would suit their problem solving style. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because I, I always try to cover it and I had forgotten at this, <laughs> this stage of our conversation. So um, first of all, we're absolutely not advocating for a pink version and a blue version yeah. because actually that, that wouldn't would be counted. 
it wouldn't work mm. because there aren't any perfectly pink yeah. people or perfectly yeah. blue people, and so it just basically would have two versions that didn't work for yeah. anybody. Um, and so instead, we think of these things as bugs that have to be fixed. And so if there's a feature that's not gender inclusive, then that means there's a barrier to you know some segment of the population, mm -hmm. and so you have to take down that barrier. Mm -hmm. And so um, so. Um, so in a way, it's, it, the answer to your question is yes. People need to have the freedom to do the thing the way they want to, mm -hmm. but it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. So let's take, for example, tooltips. So a tooltip is very much uh, geared toward this very tight little iteration style on the information processing. You gather a teeny little bit, mm -hmm. you know, which is like less than a sentence on this tooltip. It disappears, right? And uh, then the expectation is you'll act on it. You know, you'll touch the thing. You'll do the right thing, or maybe you'll go look at one more tooltip. So it's, it's very much about this tight iterative mm -hmm. thing. But but since since a lot of women want more information at once, and some men too, then uh, what that says is well. So what they'd probably like is to see a whole lot of these tooltips together at once, and maybe okay. be able to expand them. Yeah. So why not make tooltips pinnable, okay, and expandable? and uh, not go away until you dismiss them. Now you've taken down the barrier. People don't have to do preferences and stuff mm -hmm. to decide what they are. They just, if they want to pin the tooltip, they pin it. And if they don't, they don't. Yeah. And then that's, that helps people that are, are, want bigger chunks of information mm -hmm. at once and then take bigger chunks of action. And we also wouldn't always operate in exactly the same way exactly. either. Even if we have a preference for one particular style of right. this particular instance where we just want the single tool. To yes, exactly. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're right about that. And so another great example of that one is risk aversion. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, um, there are big, big uh, statistical gender differences in risk aversion anyway. And risk aversion with technology also has, has these things. But but risk uh, risk aversion is situational. So male or female, when you're working on, say, for example, um, security software, you're liable to be much more risk averse in the the thing, the way you're programming and the way you're thinking about programming than, say, if you're, uh, I don't know, um, you know, writing a game or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is very situational, and so people are going to behave very differently. With, with the software when mm. they're when they're feeling more risk averse and less mm. risk averse yeah. Yeah. yeah so how do, how are you getting this out into the world to have it to you know because you talked you said before about change the world yeah it is a so change the world you've thing. got this toolkit and this methodology and the personas mm -hmm. and you are doing some of the talks and you've got and it's all downloadable you know, how else are you going to it, it's a Get good it question, and we're, we're still learning our way uh, because we're academics. What do yeah. we know about stuff like this? <laughs> but um, I think, um, uh, okay, so I have so many thoughts in my head right now that I want to talk to you about. Um, okay, so one of the things we're doing is we're just ramping up a, a gender mag teach set mm -hmm. of resources. Mm -hmm. So we want a, a fluid, community-based wiki or something where people who have started to incorporate gender mag in their classes you know can contribute whatever their slide decks were or their homework assignments or whatever and we of course are, are you know putting out the ones we've used yeah. and um, and so we're going to just try to make it easy for people to incorporate it into their classes right. so that's educating the next generation that's of right software that's engineers, yes right? exactly so that's one way and um, and then uh, from the industry adoption side when I, I um, 
of course, I take any opportunity if somebody invites me to come talk to talk about it. And we have the kit that's downloadable, so there's that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I guess part of it is we're still learning our way about how to get it into the adoption cycle. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've noticed, though, is that there has to be interest at two levels in a company for it to work. There has to be a grassroots interest and a top-down interest. Because if the grassroots isn't interested, then the work just won't get done. There'll always be something else more important. But if the top level isn't interested in using gender mag or something like it, then the, the grassroots really don't have permission to spend mm. their time on it. Mm. And so then it has to become sort of a hobby and it just never gets done. Mm. So, so I was very lucky. I did a, a, a case study with Microsoft and they, they had that. They had the top level interest in making their software more inclusive and people were being evaluated on it. So that's not just words. It's saying, you know, this is part this of is the important. deal. Yeah. yeah. And then I had lots of grassroots interest. I almost always do because people do yeah. get very excited about this yeah. once they see it. And so that combination uh, uh, enabled things to really work reasonably well there. And so um, so one of, one, of my, one of my visions of this is that people can take ownership and morph it around to ways that work for however it is their mm. team works. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened at Microsoft. There are like a bazillion different variants and snippets and things that, mm. that people, you know, use this way and that. And I'm not trying to say that they've adopted it as a whole company, mm. but, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different places in there now that are using some bit mm. uh, of, of this work or some variant no. of it. Yeah. But it also sounds like it's important enough that it, it could be could come in through government guidelines or you know, some of the sort of accessibility awesome? requirements Wouldn't because it's be just awesome? a, a, another aspect of diversity yes. and accessibility. Yes, that's a dandy idea. Do you know anybody to do that for me? No, but yeah. maybe someone who's listening Maybe someone will who's listening know will and contact change, you. Please help me change the world, listeners. This is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it is important. It is, it is an important diversity. It is. Um, and one of the things that I found is that when people, when people use gender mag to sort of evaluate uh, the the inclusiveness of their products, mm. um, if they find something, they generally already know what to do mm -hmm. because the the method comes down to this vocabulary. And so if they find something like, yeah. for example, oh well, Abby's risk averse, so she's not going to push that, then you know push that button because it says donate your firstborn child or whatever, you know. So they say, well, let's change the mm. label. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of prescriptive. Yeah. Um, and, and then what I have seen is that when people change their products, everybody likes them better. Not just women, yeah. not just men, yeah. not just novices, yeah. not just yeah. experts, but, you know, it's taking down barriers is what it's doing. And so it's just working better. Yeah. 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 Sounds great. So what else are you passionate about? Um, so um, I feel like... Uh, you know, the world has been getting kind of scary these days. Yeah. And so I have this, this whole, you know, I, I do want to change the world. And so, so my, my particular way of having mental sanity about that is to try to do something every day that makes me feel like, you know, the world is, is a little better. And so, for example, today I'm talking to you to pitch gender mag, so that counts. Thank you. You know, and you know, giving five dollars to a homeless person that mm -hmm. counts, 
and you know, donating to a charity, that counts. And so every day I try to do something that makes me feel like that counts. And, and that's, that's my way of, of feeling like you know, I'm, I, I'm doing my bit to help solve the problems. So, and if we all did that. If we all did that, yeah. yeah, just any little thing, but make sure you do it almost every day. You're allowed so occasional Do you plan what you're going to do? No, I don't. Um, not usually. Um, a fallback can be a donation. You can wait till the end of the day, and if you didn't do anything, you can make a donation. But as my husband said the other day, this is getting kind of expensive. <laughs> so, uh, so maybe that can't be the fallback. And, and I do allow myself to have lapses, but then I get extra credit if I do two or three things on another day. So I, I think it kind of works out. Um, um, but, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just a... Uh, an out of the blue kindness that you do, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, there's somebody like the diversity lunch the other day, yeah. you know, going to that and being a table leader, of course, that counts. And um, so, yeah, there are lots of opportunities. So what I like about that is that it's orienting you to be on the lookout. Like yes. you, you, it's, it's directing your attention yes. to how can you contribute to a kind of more compassionate world. Yes. Yes. Um, I like it too. And it, it, helps me stay sane at the same time, yeah. So, and because a lot of it is gender mag, it's not an extra set of things that I have to have on my to-do list most of the time. It just dovetails with what I'm already doing. Um, and that's, I think, uh, kind of going back to the main topic of your blog, which is sort of, you know, academic life and how to navigate it. Um, I think that's the thing that's really worked for me over the years that I haven't changed. And that is I try to make sure that a lot of the things that I'm doing are really dovetailing so that I don't have to feel like I'm taking on one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. So tell me more about that. That sounds well, interesting. So I have, uh, I've kind of lost count, but I have some number of students, I don't know, eight or nine of them, and, um, at different levels. And, um, the current bunch of children. Yes, exactly. But they're not all working on their own thing. I mean, I can't afford nine threads going mm. on. I'd be driving myself crazy. Mm. But I think some people do operate that way. It's mm. crazy. Anyway, so for me, I usually have three or four things going on. And because we have a very team-oriented uh, way of working together, you know, subgroups of students are working together on these things. And, you know, somebody's thesis will be, you know, a piece of it that, you know, has a, a, a very, you know, unique spin, and they're the ones that led it, but they're still not working in isolation. Mm -hmm. And then the others that are helping them, they tend to be more junior, and they're learning how to do all mm -hmm. this stuff by doing, and they're getting, you know, more papers and things mm -hmm. like that on their resume and learning hands-on. And then, you know, sooner or later, they, they find their, their piece that they want to be their thesis, and they start leading a bunch of more junior ones in that direction. And, yeah, so, you know, so they're... so. So I do that, and then the, the change the world thing dovetails with my research, which is gender mag. And so, you know, a lot, a lot of people know that I'm very interested in women in computer science. Yeah. And so they say, oh, can you come talk to our group of high schoolers? Or, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? And I say, no. Um, you know, because I, I can't. I was expecting you to say yes. No, I say no. Yeah. Because um, I can't. No one person can do everything. So my bit 
is is gender mag. That's and and the REUs, the the research experience for undergrads, because those tend to be members mm. of underrepresented groups most of the time. Um, so that's, that's my corner of the that's interesting. diversity so world. The, even though it connects to your issue that you care about, uh-huh. you've drawn the boundary. I've drawn how much the boundary. You can contribute to making that exactly, happen. exactly. And it's kind of back to your purposeful yes, right? Yeah, yeah. that's good. That's good. I'm I'm clocking that one. Um, <laughs> so, can you say something about your management style of a group? Say, so if you've got a good group, how do you run your lab? Um, well, okay, we have. Um, we have a weekly group meeting in which we all come, all my students and I, and um, if I have, sometimes I have such close collaborating faculty that they come to that, but most of the time they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tend to have project subgroup meetings. And so, <clears throat> so for example, all eight or nine of my students come to the, the weekly group meeting, and then we have two gender mag separate meetings, or three, um, per week. <laughs> One of them is about gender mag teach, and mm-hmm. one of them is about other gender mag stuff, and others is about still other gender mag stuff. Gender mag meets open source is the third one, which my collaborator is mostly leading. So subgroups of the students that are working on those go to those. And um, I'm also working on explainable AI, and so we have a weekly meeting to the students that work on that. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing a couple of information foraging things, so they're pretty much my three threads. Nice. And so those those have their own uh, meetings and of course, if we have collaborators, then they're at those meetings mm-hmm. too. So, um, so it's it's all done that way. In addition, I have one-on-one meetings with my graduate students, not the undergrads. They just do the uh-huh. the uh, the group meetings, and then if there's something needed that has a one-on-one. Um, so we do those every week. And as I said, I have them work together on practically everything. So papers, you know, are typically a team of students, not just one and me. Um, we have developed a collaborative writing style that we like mm-hmm. that that helps us work together well on that. Um, and uh, let's see, I have them review papers for me. This is kind of interesting. This is really fun. So even the undergrads, I have them do this. I noticed you said that before. And yeah. I was going to pick up on that. Yeah. 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 So what we do is, let's say, for example, I get a batch of five Chi yeah. papers. Yeah. And so I, uh, I pass them out to my students uh, to where I have about three student reviewers per paper. And they have to go off and review and write a review. And then we have a mini program committee meeting. And so then the three that reviewed paper one or two or three or whatever, they argue it out. And um, and then they have to update their reviews. And so they, you know, they learn about, you know, writing in a way that's professionally polite yeah. and, and those kinds yeah. of things. And then I take all their reviews and their scribbled up drafts of the yeah. paper and that kind of thing and go away. And I might throw them all away. Yeah. Um, but even if I do, I've saved some time because by having them argue it out in front of me, you know, I know a lot about what's in that paper, so I can kind of pre, it's pre-navigated in some way, sort of pre-highlighted. Pre-digested. Yes, yes, and so my review uh, doesn't take as long, but by the time the students get to be senior students, you know, they're pretty good at it, and so there are some that I can take almost as is, and then when they graduate, their program committee ready. Mm. I mean, they can get on a program committee, and they know what they're doing. So, you know, That's this is a real a, win-win strategy. It's, it's win-win, absolutely. And they've learned to become better writers, yeah. too, because then they, yeah, absolutely. so I just swear by it. Yeah. yeah, and so this is another example of mentoring, dovetailing with my professional workload yeah. in a way that yeah. it just 
dovetails. Yeah. So what other mentoring strategies do you um, so uh, let's see. Here's one that I do that I hadn't even realized I did. So uh, Karen Holtzblatt, I don't remember if this was at the diversity lunch where she said this or whether it was at the SIG she did afterwards, but she talked about this, this push concept. Mm -hmm. And so she talked about how um, a lot of times uh, a woman will sort of self-select out of some opportunity because perhaps she doesn't have, you know, as much confidence in her own abilities as she should. And this is more prevalent among women than men, although, of course, it can occur with anyone. And so she talked about how someone who's their superior or collaborator or mentor or whatever can give them a push and saying, no, you should try for this. I really think you can do it. Anyway, so it turns out that I do that. And so I've had several students in the past where I've absolutely insisted that they apply, for example, for a Google scholarship or an NSF fellowship or one of these things. And I've had so many times where they've said, I, you know, this is, I, I can't do it. You know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't have anything to say yet, mm -hmm. you know, and I just force them to do it. And then they win, you know, <laughs> and, and um, yeah. So, so I do that. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Um, the brain is a muscle. That's one I use quite a lot. Mm. So have you heard of NCWIT, the National Center for Women in IT? Oh, yes, I have heard of that. Okay, yep. the, an amazing organization. This they have, is within the states. Yeah, it yep. is, although it is because it's funded mostly yep. by the NSF, yep. but uh, actually everything is applicable anywhere. Yeah. Um, anyway, they have these amazing resources uh, that are all free, and, and one of them is on uh, helping to, um, it's, it's, on, it's on stereotype threat and, and how to avoid triggering it and at the same time, how to not be so scared you're going to trigger it that you're actually not doing justice to your students. And so one of the favorite tips that I like in there is a brain, the brain is a muscle. So in computer science classes, a lot of times uh, the women don't have as much prior experience as the men because the men have been going to computer camps since they were five or whatever, and you know the women you know, are fairly new to it. And so... They believe then when they land in the first computer science class that they aren't as good at it as the men and that therefore they don't belong in the major. Yeah. And so, so I, I try to explain to people that uh, in, in situations like that or any other situation that you, know, you wouldn't go to the gym for the first time in your whole life and expect to be able to bench press 100 pounds. You know you, you, know you have to work up to it. You, know, you have to exercise the right pieces of your muscles to be yeah. able to do it. And the same is true in you know, all the things that we do in HCI and computer science, you know, so we ought to be bad at it our first time in. And we ought not to be comparing ourselves to the people who've been working out at it for the last 15 got years. Built up that's muscles. right, that's right. So, uh, like for example, um, there was, so my, my REUs, you know, they helped me write too. And, and, you know, frankly, you know, most undergrads are just horrible writers, um, at least at first. And so, Actually, so are a lot of grad students. Um, but anyway, uh, so I ran across one of my undergrads who was helping us write a paper. And, you know, she wasn't really going anywhere fast with this writing. And, and she was standing in the coffee line looking kind of slump-shouldered and discouraged. And I said, you know, I bet you think, you know, what am I doing here? I am so bad at this, you know, this writing stuff is so hard and it's not going anywhere and I'm not really contributing and I'm letting everyone down. And she said, you read my mind. 
And I no, said, you read her body, actually, didn't yeah. you? And I said, the brain is a muscle. You haven't written before. You know, of course it's hard. Yeah, and um, yeah, she got better at it. They always get better at and it. And it's, it's taking on that growth mindset. Yes, absolutely. Sort of, yeah. um, very uh, talked about a lot at the moment in psychology and education. Earlier you also talked about having two kids. Yes. How did you manage yeah. life and work with kids? So um, I, uh, I quickly learned that I needed to draw fences around my day. And I guess I didn't discover this all by myself because when you have kids in daycare, the daycare center closes at some point. Yeah. So you pretty much have to have a fence. And then you have little kids running around, mommy, mommy, you know, and so it's not exactly <laughs> like you're going to be working. So, so what that turned into for me is I regarded my day as having fences around it. So I had a fence at the end of the afternoon where after that fence I had to go pick up my kids. And then from then until bedtime was family time. And then in the morning, if I got up before everyone, I would work. Um, but then when they were up, from then until I got to work was family time. And, and then on weekends, all of that was family time too, with occasional exceptions, or if I got up extra early or something. But otherwise, it was family time too. And that worked really well for me. Because so often, you know, you have people who, you know, when they have kids and, and they're working and they love all of these things, they always feel like they're doing the wrong thing. If they're at work, they feel bad because they're not at home. When they're at home, they feel bad because they're not working. Yeah. You know, it's like it's yeah. always the wrong thing. Yeah. And so by sort of assigning when I was supposed to be, when the right thing was this versus when the right thing was that, then I didn't have that. And so it was a great stress relief for me because I just... Everything was so clear that way. But could you manage, could it, was it all manageable within those um, fences? It was. Um, and uh, as I said, there were occasional exceptions. Yeah, like if there was some course. horrible deadline, yeah. you know, then maybe I'd have to work on a weekend or something. But, um, but the sort of wild cards I had, or I could get up early, and that would give me a couple extra hours if I needed it. And then the thing is, I didn't actually allow myself any hobbies. It was sort of like, that's it. That I've got the work. Trade off a bit. The, kids, the kids and my husband are my hobby. Yeah. And so it wasn't, and so I used to, uh, I'm an avid novel reader, but I didn't actually allow myself to read novels except if it was between terms. It's mm -hmm. to that extent, yeah. no extra hobbies um, until the kids graduated from high school. And then, okay, hobbies again, woohoo! Yeah, but. Um, so do you still maintain the, those same sort of fences, boundaries? I, I'm not nearly as good at it anymore. Um, my husband is retired now, and so his day is more fluid, and my day is more fluid, and uh, he likes to go skiing quite a lot too, and so if he happens to be skiing, then, you know, I just work all the time. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess the reason I don't have the fences anymore is I don't need them so much yeah, anymore. Yeah. And, and also, my, my energy patterns have changed. So when I was younger, you know, if, I'd, if I, you know, if I had the kind of lifestyle that would allow it, I could have worked 24 hours, you know. But now, you know, I'm an old person. I can't really work that. So at some point, you know, my body, my body and my brain are going to say, okay, that's it. You know, you got to take, you know, you have to go relax. So but it's working for you now. It's working, yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, um, we should probably look at wrapping up. Okay. Let you go and recover a little bit from your flu as well. I, I don't You've think done I, really I, well. I don't think I have the flu, but I do think I have something. something <laughs> yeah. yeah.
Yeah. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Do you have any final thoughts or things that you want to um, help me change say? the world with Gender Mag? So everyone's invited to contribute. Everyone's invited and to contribute. I will make and to sure to put the, the links and everything on the on the web page. Oh, that'd be awesome. Gendermag.org. Great. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Mom. Thank you so much. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.